Good morning. Yes, if you're new, if you're visiting for the first time to King's, uh, as Alan said, I'm not the preacher. So please, please come again and visit when, when you have the opportunity to hear Alan preach. Our skip, scripture passage this morning comes from Galatians chapter 5. And there's a number of topics that Paul addresses in this chapter. But the particular one we are going to consider this morning is the bondage of sin and the battle between the spirit and the flesh. Paul addresses this earlier in Romans, and he sums up this battle really well when he says, For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. That's from Romans 7, verses 19 and 20. And that statement, if you're anything like me, really just sheds a floodlight on all of the, the condition of our lives and the, and the sins that keep us from experiencing the fullness of freedom in Christ. So let's read together Galatians 5, starting at verse 1, and then we're going to skip down all the way to verses 16 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. For freedom in Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. The Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. We ask that you would open up your word to us, prepare our hearts to receive it, give us clear minds for understanding and the spiritual fortitude to live it according to the grace that you give to us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. Amen. In the first part of this passage, that is the part that we're skipping over this morning, the freedom that Paul is referring to is the freedom from ceremonies of the law. He's warning Galatians, the Galatians, to be aware of the Judaizing teachers who would like to entangle them in the bondage of ceremonial law and attach them to a yoke of moralism and legalism. He exhorts them to remember that our justification comes from Christ alone and not by any obligation to eat or not eat this food or that or to keep this ceremony or that. But of course, the debt that Christ paid 
for our justification goes far beyond freeing us from a set of tyrannical do's and don'ts. And simply liberating us from ceremonies would cheapen the work of Christ on the cross. See, the way the Pharisees had things set up was was a sort of tail-wagging-the-dog situation whereby constantly binding the conscience, constantly burying your own sin on your own shoulders was the way to be. And that, of course, is an insult to Christ. Of course, the Galatians were not ever actually under the law, but the warning to them and to us as well is twofold. Number one, don't get entangled in legalism and moralism. Not majoring on the minors and instead focus on the message of Christ crucified and on his resurrection and lordship. And number two, to stop being in bondage to sin. Paul is basically telling them in this passage that they are carnal, they're destitute from the Spirit of God, and that they are living lives that are unworthy of Christians. And there's no evidence that they're being led by the Spirit, but rather by the lusts of their own flesh. The point is that Christ has not only freed us from the law of ceremonies, but also from the bondage of sin. Which brings us to the part of the chapter we'll be considering this morning. People like most of us who have never really had to live under the, the, the burden or the bondage of ceremonial law might find this a little bit difficult to relate to in terms of the, the freedom from being out from under that. But on the other hand, the idea of being released from the bondage of sin, while it's a great relief, is a different story. If you're anything like me, you might think of a, a person who is, who is living in the bondage of sin as maybe a, a drug addict who's living under a bridge with a paper bag full of needles or a prostitute or a, a, a serial uh, criminal who's returning back and forth in and out of jail or someone else who's just ruining, destroying their lives underneath the bondage of sin. But it doesn't take very much introspection for me to be able to look into my own heart and see the sins that I have trouble divorcing myself from. Of course, we know that we are forgiven by Christ's atoning work, but does that give us liberty to continue to keep on sinning? Again, our brother Paul says in Romans six fourteen through 16, For sin shall not be your master. Remember this word master. We're going to come back to this idea of slave and a master here and. Later in this verse, he says, Because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that when you offer yourselves as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, leading to death, or to obedience leading to righteousness. You're slave to one of those two things. Or in the words of the great theologian Bob Dylan, you're going to have to serve somebody. It might be the devil, or it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. So if that is true, and we are professing Christians desiring so greatly to serve our Lord, how is it that we keep on sinning? Paul explains that in every one of us there's a great struggle between the flesh and the spirit. The carnal 
sinful part of us has a craving. It lusts and struggles with intense vigor, great strength, and endless ambition against the Spirit. It's constant, relentless, and it occurs almost every waking moment of our lives. The sin that we are born into opposes all of the works, every movement of the Spirit, and it puts up great resistance to everything that is spiritual and holy. And so it comes to pass that we can neither do all of the good that we want to do, nor do we do all of the evil that we could do. And this, we must conclude, will be our plight for as long as we shall remain in this world. Disobedience and rebellion are against the Spirit of God and they pervade the whole nature of man. I know this is true because I spend every day with 320 little children in one building. Disobedience and rebellion against the Spirit of God purvey the whole system. It's so easy for me to look at them some days and see their sins so openly on display and think, are you crazy? Sometimes I, I, I look, I, I think the children wake up in the morning and their head pops off the pillow and they have a hundred new ideas in their head of how to make things not go well for themselves during the day. Why? Why are you constantly seeming to make your lives harder than they need to be? As an adult looking at them, it just seems so illogical to me that they would get themselves entangled in all of the things that they do And I say to them, if you want things to go well for you, all you have to do is just obey. You can save yourself so much trouble. But then as I look at them, I realize that I'm really just looking into a mirror. It's kind of one of those funhouse crazy mirrors where things are a little bit distorted. They're smaller than me and their sins are different from me. But it's so easy to see in them the struggle between the spirit and the flesh. On one hand, there are these these sweet, joyful little souls who genuinely want to please their parents and their teachers. And on the other hand, they have this little monster inside of them. It's a battle between the spirit and the flesh. If we would obey the spirit, we must labor and fight and apply our utmost energy to our own self-denial, not to be yoked to a law, not to put on a good face of self-righteousness, not to be prideful over our own goodness, but also not to permit the desires of the carnal man to reign over us. We've all seen it happen where a Christian walks away from the faith. I think very few Christians would wake up one morning and say, you know, I think this is the day that I'm going to go off the rails. It's, it's usually more a, a matter of losing little battles without a vigorous fight. We keep little pet monsters under the table and we drop little morsels of food to them until they grow and grow and grow and become our master. We water the fields that we want to grow. 
We can't water one field and expect it to grow. We can't neglect to water one field and, and expect it to grow. John Calvin says of this struggle between the spirit and the flesh, there is no greater agreement between them than between fire and water. Where then shall we find a drop of goodness in man's free will? The carnal mind is at enmity with God. And listen to this from the Westminster Confession of Faith. We are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil. From this proceeds all actual transgressions. And that's not the only thing that we have against us. Satan likes to turn the liberty that Christ has gained for us into license, or or literally into licentiousness. Turning that liberty into license is not a thing that is new to us. The Apostle Jude laments this, saying, There are certain men who crept in unawares, turning the grace of God into licentiousness. That's from Jude 1.4. And so the flesh reasons... If we're without law, we may as well indulge ourselves. Why should we do good? Why should we give up the pleasures that come along with sin? Why should we daily take on this very difficult struggle? Why suffer when there is no law to force us to do so? Well, it's our duty and it's in our best interest in this struggle, to be on the side of the better part within us. It's our duty and it's in our best interest in this struggle to side with our convictions over sin. It's our duty and it's in our best interest in this struggle to side with virtue over vice. It's our duty and it's in our best interest in this struggle to walk in the Spirit, to abide in the fruit of the Spirit, versus this list of of poisons from Satan. The bad news for us is that we are totally incapable of doing this on our own. No matter how resolved we may be, the enemy of the Spirit rises up again in us over and over and over again and wrestles with the Spirit. No one is so completely under the influence of the Spirit that the flesh will not continue to bite at, to devour, or at least to neglect or ignore the spirit with just the slightest provocation. And yet, we are called to crucify the flesh. And in verse 16, Paul gives us the antidote. He says, walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Some people say that what Paul is referring to is the Holy Spirit that is given to us upon our justification to to guide us in our duties. And other people say that it's the the general goodness that that comes from the new nature that God has created in, in us. And that new nature struggles against the old corrupt nature in the same way that the old corrupt nature is constantly struggling against the new nature. But the charge given to us here is the same, whichever way. To set ourselves to live and to act under the guidance of that new spirit within us or the Holy Spirit. And in doing so, hour after hour, day after day, month after month, 
year after year, we become better and better equipped to resist the old carnal nature, the corrupt nature, and its assault on us, and its pursuit to keep us in bondage to our sin. So how do we do that? How do we walk in the Spirit? The first way to walk in the Spirit is is so simple and so overly obvious that it, it would be easy to just underestimate it. To, well, duh, of course. Read our Bibles. God's Word is essential to overcoming the bondage of sin. Psalm 119, 103 through 107 says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn and I have confirmed that I will keep your righteous judgments. I am severely afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. That unspoken juxtaposition there between bitterness and sweetness is just brilliant, isn't it? Just pause there for a moment and and let yourself dwell on that. The bitterness we experience when we when we give in to sin in contrast with the sweetness of God's holy word. Think of the last time you allowed yourself to give in to sin or were overcome with temptation. The result was anything but sweet, wasn't it? Then think of reading God's word. Imagine if in that moment that we were overcome with sin, we took our Bible and began reading. How would you have done things differently? Martin Luther says of this, When the flesh begins to cut up, the only remedy is to take the sword of the Spirit, the word of salvation, and fight against the flesh. If you set the word out of sight, you are helpless against the flesh. I know this to be a fact. I have been assailed by many violent passions, but as soon as I took hold of some scripture passage, my temptation left me. Without the word, I could not have helped myself against the flesh. That passage goes on next to say, through your precepts, I get understanding. Understanding of what? How to walk in the Spirit. It says, therefore, I hate every false way. The false ways of the carnal man and of the flesh. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. There could not be any clearer imagery on how to walk in the spirit there. I have sworn and I have confirmed that I will keep your judgments. And then immediately after that, I am afflicted. I have sworn and I have confirmed, I've promised it, I've vowed it over and over again that I will keep your commandments. Bam! I'm afflicted. The solution? Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. 
And of course, we know the psalmist here is talking to God, which brings us to our next way of walking in the Spirit through prayer. Imagine again, if in that moment of sin, we, we turn to God in prayer and earnestly pray to be delivered from that sin, how things could be different. We should also set our minds to a biblical pattern of confessing, repenting, asking forgiveness, and restoring fellowship. This is the, the liturgy of walking in the Spirit. We should make this our habit. And of course, we come to the table of the Lord to partake of the sacraments like we will do here in a couple of minutes. And Pastor Allen often admonishes us that we don't neglect coming to the table because we are weak. We come to the table precisely because we are weak. To physically walk, we need physical food. And to walk spiritually, we need spiritual food. And of course, to come to the table, you have to come to the house. So we should not neglect to worship here. These are spiritual and practical things that strengthen us for the discipline and the self-control to walk in the Spirit and exhibit the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. A few weeks ago, Pastor Allen mentioned that our sanctification is a belly crawl. It isn't instant. It's a belly crawl with forward movement. To conclude this morning, I'd like to leave you with some encouragement once again from the words of Martin Luther, which I think brings a a nice balance to all of this. He says, Do not despair if you feel the flesh battling against the spirit or if you cannot make it behave. For you to follow the guidance of the spirit in all things without interference on the part of the flesh is impossible. You are doing all you can if you resist the flesh and do not fulfill its demands. When I was a monk, I thought I was lost forever when I felt an evil emotion, carnal lust, wrath, hatred, or envy. I tried to quiet my conscience in many ways, but it did not work because lust would would always come back and give me no rest. I told myself, You have permitted this and that sin, envy, impatience, and the like. Your joining this holy order has been in vain, and all your good works are good for nothing. If at that time I had understood this passage, the flesh flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, I could have spared myself many a day of self-torment. I would have said to myself, Martin, you will never be without sin, for you have flesh. Despair not, but resist the flesh. No man is to despair of salvation just because he is aware of the lust of his flesh. Let him be aware of it so long as he does not yield his life to it. The passion of lust, wrath, and other vices may shake him, but they are not to get him down. Sin may assail him, but it is not, he is not to welcome it. Yes, the better Christian a man is the more he will experience the heat of the conflict. This explains the many expressions of regret in the Psalms and in the entire Bible. He says everybody is to determine his peculiar weakness and guard against it. 
watch and wrestle in the Spirit against your weakness. Even if you cannot completely overcome it, at least you ought to fight against it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.